welcome to Injury Prevention Podcasts. My name is Rod McClure. Each month I chat with a distinguished researcher or practitioner and together we explore the narrative of their injury prevention careers. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Margie Peden, who's head of the Global Injury Program at the George Institute for Global Health. She's primarily located in London and is a senior research fellow at the University of Oxford, a conjoint senior lecturer at the University of New South Wales, Sydney, and co-director of the WHO Collaborating Centre on Injury Prevention and Trauma Care. Hello, Dr. Peden. Hello, Rod. Nice to, nice to talk to you. Could you give us a little background about uh, where you're currently working and what you're currently doing? Um, I am currently the head of the Global Injury Program at the George Institute for Global Health. So the George Institute um, has offices, has head office um, in Sydney, Australia, um, and we have three other regional offices, one in China, in Beijing, one in um, Delhi, in India, and the third one here in the United Kingdom, which is where I'm based, um, affiliated to Oxford University. The George Institute uh, is a research institute which looks at non-communicable diseases and injuries. A good place for perhaps me to ask my first question about the importance of injury as a global health issue. Uh, clearly, you believe at the Institute that it's one of the critical areas that you need to do research on. Why have you come to that idea? Well, you know, back um, in the late 1990s, Marianne Lopez published The Global Burden of Disease, which was, I think, the first time that the global community really woke up to the issue that injuries was a major problem, when they saw probably about five different types of injuries in, in the leading causes of death. Road traffic injuries was right up um, around fifth place, I think, um, certainly drowning, um, burns, falls, all were showing um, in the global burden of disease. And it was at that time, I think, that the, the, the global community said, hang on, injuries is a real big problem. And WHO in 2000, in fact, um, elevated injuries to the level of a department. And I think that um, the global community followed, followed suit um, and recognized that it was a major problem. And still today, 20 years later, um, injuries and violence still are a leading cause um, of death in, in all countries around the world but predominantly um, in low- and middle-income countries where around 80 to 90% of all injury-related deaths occur. Okay, your, your answer there really captured for me an entire philosophy that's often not so well uh, articulated. Do you think that Absolutely. without the WHO, we wouldn't have gone anywhere as far as we currently have in, in a collective response? I think that WHO has been very instrumental in moving this area forward. Um, I'm not suggesting that many of the individual organizations wouldn't have gone, uh, gone ahead without WHO, but I think certainly WHO um, has put injuries on the map in many countries where it has thought, been thought of um, 
as in the domain of maybe transport or justice in in um, in the case of violence. And I think there were two seminal documents that WHO brought out right at the beginning of the 2000s. The first one was the World Report on Violence Prevention, um, which uh, showed that violence, all types of violence, were in fact a public health problem and not just a problem of policing, justice, um, and social affairs. And then the second one, which I was involved in um, in my role at WHO, and that was the World Report on Road Traffic Injuries, which was a, a report that was brought out jointly between WHO and the World Bank that shifted the, the, the paradigm from laying blame um, at the, the door of the road user to looking at the issue in a systematic way, looking at it from a, um, what we call a, a systems approach. So um, making governments take ownership um, of road safety. I think those two documents were really seminal um, and, and moved the community, both the unintentional injury community and the intentional injury community. And there are some overlaps, but there are also some differences between how we approach the, the two um, intentions of, of injury. You know, when I used to go um, and meet with um, the advisors to ministers of health in, in um, low- and middle-income countries, I had to convince them that this was an issue that they wanted to add to their agendas in addition to malaria and HIV and TB. Um, but because of the evidence that we had synthesized and, and put into the world reports, um, we were able to show not only um, the magnitude um, of the problem, but also some of the cost-effective interventions. And let's be honest, injury prevention isn't rocket science. We know what works in high-income countries. Um, and I think we are beginning to understand after 20 years how those principles can be applied in low- and middle-income countries and how they can be amended to take into account the, the local context. It's a strong statement you make about um, providing technical expertise that people can rely on when they need to know what to do next rather than be disempowered by the size of the problem and then not know how to fix it. I suspect the WHO not only has had that role, as you've said, in, in the conceptual, but also in the technical. And, and that's one of the clear parts of where you've been working for a while. So you were, you're at the George Institute now. You'd previously worked at the WHO. How long were you there? I was at the WHO for exactly 17 years, um, during which time I um, headed, I was the coordinator of unintentional injury prevention within what was then the Department of Violence and Injury Prevention. There have been some subsequent changes at the WHO since, um, since I left in 2017. Um, and injuries and violence are now in a unit that looks um, more broadly at social determinants of health. Violence and injury is one of those divisions which we were talking earlier about sometimes is considered in two completely separate um, buckets. In the WHO, they've been brought together in the 
US CDC, they've been brought together in a single unit. You said that there are some similarities, some differences in techniques, but is it at the level of social determinants, which there's the greatest degree of similarity, or are there uh, methodologies for detection, risk factor identification and implementation that you can use across those two domains of unintentional and intentional injury? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, I think probably at all levels there are similarities um, and differences. <clears throat> if, if you look at um, social determinants, there are many that are shared. Um, I think whether it's an unintentional injury or an intentional injury, issues like poverty, um, overcrowding, um, yeah, some of uh, economic issues all have a, have a part to play. Um, however, if one looks at how one addresses um, unintentional injuries versus intentional injuries, my colleagues when I worked at um, WHO always thought that I had I had drawn uh, the the short straw because, in fact, unintentional injuries have a whole load more, have a bigger evidence base around what works. Um, And so I had a bigger bucket, basically, Mm -hmm. to take um, to to policymakers and say, try this or try this or try the next thing. Whereas with violence prevention, I think, it's, it's much more complex, um, much more interwoven with the social determinants. Um, I think with unintentional injuries, there's certainly um, things that individuals can do. You can put on a helmet. You can put on a seatbelt. Um, you can make sure that the ladder isn't wobbly before you climb up it, etc. cetera. Um, whereas with uh, some types of violence prevention, um, it's much more of a community response that's required. The only area I think um, where there's quite a lot of overlap, and, I, and it's something that I haven't brought out yet and something that I am quite passionate about, and that is... Um, the whole um, spectrum of, of, of injury prevention, including the care and rehabilitation right at this end. Because no matter how hard we try um, to prevent injuries and violence upstream, there are always going to be people that fall or are involved in violent incidents. And so we will always need a response. We will always need a good and appropriate healthcare system in order to be able to manage um, the acute injuries and then long-term disability um, and rehabilitation that many people require. Um, And that rehabilitation can be in the form of of, um, physical rehabilitation, but oftentimes um, people who are injured, whether intentionally or unintentionally, require um, psychological support as well. So, So it's, it's an area that, that um, in my work at the George Institute now, I'm beginning to look at much more. Um, I trained as a nurse um, in South Africa, and it was, it was my nursing experience that led me into injury prevention because basically one day uh, when I was working in accident in emergency room and the, the pedestrian injuries and the violent injuries were pouring in, I think I just stood back and looked at this and thought, 
there has to be some way that we can prevent this upstream. There has to be some way that we can put in place mechanisms and prevention strategies that can prevent these numbers of people coming in um, to the trauma unit every day and every night. So when was it that you did have that realisation, that, that moment of sitting there watching the chaos and deciding that this can be prevented? So that was in the early 90s um, when I was working um, in uh, intensive care units um, and accident and emergency in a very big teaching hospital in Cape Town, South Africa, the teaching hospital, Hrutskia Hospital, the one where Crispano did the first heart transplant. And I'm, I'm actually old enough to have worked with Crispano, it's sad as that may seem. Um, but it was, yes, in the early 90s when I was working in accident and emergency that, that this suddenly went off in my head. And it was at that time that I decided to go back to university um, and, and do a degree in epidemiology, which, which I did. Um, and then soon after that, in around 1993, a job came up at the South African Medical Research Council, which looked like it combined clinical skills with research skills with a little bit of teaching. And I thought, I think it's time for me to move. Mm-hmm. And so I applied for that job um, and, and went to work at the Medical Research Council, um, where I was involved with setting up um, a national injury surveillance system for South Africa um, and began my work and interest in alcohol-related injuries, which is what I did my, my PhD on. Which can be another link, can't it, between the unintentional and intentional injury? Exactly. So you've almost done a, well, not a circle, but a spiral in the sense that you started in clinical practice um, into epidemiology and research and then into an organization which was evidence-based but with a large um, implementation element back into a research institute in in london so it's it's a a journey which would you have thought that that's where you would would end up if remember the day you graduated from your initial basic um, clinical training did you think that this is the sort of career you would have were you leaning this way or was this something that just happened as a result of life experience? I think it just happened because of life experience. I think I, I, think I was in the right time at the right place um, uh, or maybe was thinking about the right things at the right mm. time. Um, and, yeah, so I certainly, when I graduated in the 80s, never thought that I would be sitting at the WHO. Um, but it just it just worked out that way, and and I must say that my 17 years at WHO um, were the most fulfilling of my um, of my career. Um, it was great to be able to be listened to. It 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 was always interesting to me that when I worked um, as a researcher in my own home country, my government wouldn't listen to me. And yet, when I went to work at WHO, suddenly my government, my own government, would listen to what I had to say. 
Um, but I mean, the, think the great thing about WHO is that it requires a cadre of, of great researchers behind it because WHO doesn't do the research. WHO relies on researchers like those that I now have working with me here at the George Institute who are the thinkers, who are the experimenters, who come up with, with um, new information and test information in different settings so that WHO can then go um, to policymakers and say, this is what happens when we do it this way and this is what happens when we do it another way. It has a group of collab what it calls collaborating centres um, and I am now co-head um, of the WHO Collaborating Centre on Injury Prevention and Trauma Care uh, together with uh, Professor Rebe Rebecca Ivers, um, who works um, at the University of New South Wales, but is also a George Institute um, fellow. And, and I'm now on that end of the scale of providing the information um, and, the, and the evidence and research to WHO. Maggie, you said a few minutes ago that you were in the right place at the right time. I think everyone listening to this will agree that you were the right person in the place at that time and made it all right. Um, thank you very much for the chance we've had to chat today. Thank you. We've been chatting with Dr. Margie Peden from the George Institute for Global Health at the Oxford University London office. For those of you wanting to learn more about the topic of injury prevention, I'd encourage you to visit the journal's website at injuryprevention.bmj.com. Remember, you can subscribe to Injury Prevention Podcast in your favourite platform or app and have it automatically downloaded to your device each month.